0: Holy Spirit, we invite you to come again this morning. We thank you that because of the finished work of Jesus, we are marked and guaranteed our inheritance because of your presence in our lives. We thank you that you're moving us day by day into a fuller reflection of, the, of who Jesus is, We pray that you would do some of that this morning as we go through this next section in Acts. Would you encourage our hearts this morning of the worth of Christ, the beauty of Jesus, and the need that we have to reflect Him to a worthless world, wrapped in sin, lost, and that you, in your great mercy, have, through Christ, commanded all men everywhere to repent and be reconciled to you. You could have judged it, you could have destroyed it, but instead you have shown mercy to humanity, calling a people to yourself. Would you make us faithful witnesses to your mercy? We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Alright, we are in Acts chapter 6. And I'm going to do something I don't do often. Which is go through the entire chapter. Um, and it's easy to do because it's only 15 verses. So that's all good. Let's look at... Um, we're starting verse 1. Um, in the first five chapters, we've seen the Christian community... As it is in Jerusalem, and this was a Christianity that was culturally influenced by Judaism, and so in Acts two through five, the focus of Luke has been the um, the, the work of the community, the birth of the community, the, the the signs and wonders that the Holy Spirit was doing through them to make a witness for Christ in the community in Jerusalem. That's the main location. Uh, of their evangelism effort. That's the main location of their growth and, and, um, and work as a church. What was Jesus' command at the ascension? Do you remember? What did he say? You will be my witnesses where? Jerusalem, Jerusalem first. Mm-hmm. Then what? What are the marching orders? Judea, Samaria, Judea, Samaria and the uttermost. uttermost. We'll go King James. The uttermost parts, parts of the earth. And so far, have they done that? Not really. Not really. Judea. Not not even Judea yet. Really, I mean, they've been in Jerusalem, and they've been kind of hanging out there. And they've had the favor of the people. They've had some pushback from leadership, but they've had the favor of the people uh, with them. And it's kind of a kind of a comfortable situation, right? They're held in high esteem by the people. They're held. Uh, they're able to do what they need to do, even though they've they've been. The apostles were flogged by the Sanhedrin. It wasn't so bad that they're going to leave town. Uh, he says, uh, "Well, he says, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth." That's Acts 1.8. What does it take for the next phase? To happen in Jesus' marching orders. What does it take? Uh, chapters 6 through 8 are transitional chapters in Luke. It's here that we start to see the mission of the church branch from a very centralized location in Judea. They move federal to local. <laughs> they go out. And something has to happen for them to do that. We see the church moving from Jerusalem toward its mission in the wider world. And it begins, it begins with that hated church dispute. We have a problem in the church here. Um, Let's look at this. Verse 1. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint By the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, These they set before the apostles and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Uh, In those days some of the smart guys placed this event about five years after Pentecost. Just based on some other stuff that goes on in Acts that we can actually date from other records. So we're looking at, a, you know, Paul being converted in 31 to 35 AD, the death of Herod Agrippa, which, I mean, when we get to that passage, that's a man passage there. Um, the death of Herod Agrippa, 44 AD. They'd seen some incredible growth in those five years. Uh, but typically, as it always happens, with great growth comes great administrative responsibility, Right? What's the nature of the problem here? What's what's the deal? Widows are not being taken care of. Widows are not being taken care of. Who's widows? Gentiles. Gentiles? Jewish. <clears throat> Jewish Hellenistic Jews. What are we talking about here? Hellenistic Jews. Greek-speaking Jews. Greek-speaking Jews. Now, what are we? Where would they come from? Don't say Greek. <laughs> Greek. Greek. Not that's not Greek necessarily. Whenever we talk about, whenever Luke uses the term Hellenistic Jews, he's talking about a group of people, Jewish people, who had been dispersed, the diaspora is is the the common term there. They're they're all over the empire. They've been run out, transplanted from from Judea into places all over the empire, and and they've taken on cultural characteristics of the Hellenized world, the Greek-speaking world. Rome, although it was a Roman Empire, was massively based on Greek culture. There was a lot of Greek influence on them from the philosophers and other things. And so, when the culture itself was very Greek, and these Jews would come back to Jerusalem, uh, and they were different than. They were different than your your typical um, Jewish people in Jerusalem. They spoke a different language. There were cultural differences there. But they wanted to be back in their homeland. Um, All right, so the widows weren't being taken care of. Greek-speaking Christians complained against the Aramaic-speaking Christians that their widows were getting ignored. Um, As the church increased it came to include more Hellenistic converts and what would often happen is that these guys who were out in the empire when they would get older there would be a longing for them to go back to the holy city is what they would call it. so they want to die spend their last few years in the holy city well what happens when you bring your family back to the holy city when you're old and die you leave behind a wife Who's now separated from her support group, the people she grew up around. Her family's still out there, and so she's a widow in Jerusalem. In that culture, what does that mean? Destitute. Destitute. Uh, women were not, uh, didn't often have means of making an income for themselves, especially older women who were not, you know, sometimes not physically able to do those kinds of things. So the men would die and leave their wives far from any family support group. Um, what would naturally happen among those of like language and culture? What, what, what's, what's the issue here? Not all the widows were being neglected. Just the Greek speaking Christian widows were being neglected. The different ones. The different ones. Now, are we to assume then that there was some. Um, Prejudice against the Hellenistic Jews in the Christian community? Is that what's going on? It's probably the opposite. It's not active neglect, but passive neglect. Passive neglect because of what, you think? I agree with you, but why do you think that is? You you tend to gather and spend time with those that are like you, not those that are different from you, and so then you notice and care for those that you're spending time with, not those that you don't always... You know, gather with. There there could oftentimes be a communication breakdown, right? Yeah, makes- because you, you kind of gather with the ones you can speak to and communicate with, and you're not really attuned to others that you don't understand the language. So, there's a complaint among the Hellenist, Hellenistic Jewish Christians, the Greek-speaking Christians, that those that the Aramaics were naturally hanging out with, they were informed, they knew about their widows. But they weren't naturally clued into the Hellenistic widows. And where this distancing naturally manifests is a community's charity, how we deal with charity. Um, all right. Who, who administered... <coughs> The Church Benevolence Fund here. Who's administering this? The apostles. The apostles are. The apostles uh, seem to be in charge of this initially, but but I mean, you'd think that as the thing is growing, they're going to entrust it to other men. Remember, we saw uh, a few passages back where they were laying gifts at the apostles' feet. So the the idea is the apostles are administering this, but there's an assumption here that later on they're going to delegate that and naturally they would delegate it to guys they could communicate with which were the Aramaic Jewish Christians so the problem arises in my view it arises in communication not in a um, not in a a prejudicial malevolent, malevolent kind of way all right Um, there's. It's important also, kind of, kind of um, remember that the way they did charity here kind of mirrors what we saw in Leviticus. There was a weekly distribution for resident widows, those who were resident uh, impoverished people, where they'd give them a weekly distribution about enough for maybe fourteen meals, and so every week. They would do that, and then there was a daily distribution. They go from house to house to those who are poor and give food and, and, and drink to to non-residents uh, or transient kind of people. So it may have been that there was uh, an issue with this day-to-day distribution. In fact, it says the daily distribution. So the thought is that some of the the widows who were in who were considered non-resident, even though they were residents because they spoke a different language. And they were being missed in some of the daily stuff. So that's kind of functionally what's going on. Uh, But where it gets interesting is how do they handle this? (coughs) What do the apostles do to handle this? They delegated. How did they begin the delegation? What's the procedure that they use? You said they prayed? What do they do? They got all the disciples together. All the disciples together. This is a Greek problem, isn't it? It's not. It's the Greeks who are complaining. But it's a church problem. But it's church problem. Even though it's dealing with a faction, and I say that not in the sense that there's conflict in a negative way, but even though it was one part of the church that has the problem, they call everybody in. To handle this why would that be what do you think if anybody else has a similar problem they you know how it, you know, they can solve not, not just this one conflict but they can figure out how to solve if anything similar comes up we've got a solution for it and also you get lots of different uh, points of view and wisdom you know they're they all come from different backgrounds so you, you can solve a problem better so you have a lot of a lot of uh you get a lot of eyes on the problem. You also have total participation of the entire body in the solution, right? So that there's buy-in by everybody. Well, how come the Hellenists are getting special treatment? You know, you don't have any of that. You have everybody in. You have everybody looking at the problem. You have everybody hearing the proposal that that the apostles are going to make. But who makes the final decision on, yeah, that's a good idea, let's do it. The people do. Just let that sink in on your understanding of how church polity should work. Um, that was rare, too. It's like one of the only times we see that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's dealing with money. So there we have the Baptist understanding of people approve the church budget. There, there it is. Okay. <laughs> it's been through the centuries, all the way back through the Trail of Tears. I'm kidding. That's not, that's not true. Okay. What is this statement about waiting on tables? Doesn't that seem arrogant? Can I use this everyday life? <laughs> I've tried; it doesn't work. <laughs> it just doesn't work. Uh, what is this about waiting on tables? Is that Christ-like? It seems awfully arrogant. Do they have boldness to protect? their station, their God ordained ministry. Okay? So there's a there's a unique role of the apostles, right? And they understand that. They're conscious very conscious of that. The the apostles were the living witnesses uh, of the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. That was a unique role. It was a foundational role for the for the ministry of the church, for the for the, the mission of the church, to have them do their thing. Uh, And it says it's not right. The idea there is it it wasn't pleasing to God. We've got to be about this. And so for things to get done that need to get done, they're not saying this isn't important. Obviously, it's very important. But in order for it to get done, we can't do it because we need to be about this. We need the, the people, the church, to take ownership of the functions of the ministry of the church and do it themselves. Right? In that, you see that that's kind of going on there. The metaphor "wait on tables" can mean either serving food or distributing money, depending on uh, kind of the, the focus you want to put there. But it's just not, their their argument is it's not right that anything limit their witness and their unique role. Now, I will say there are pastors who use this, and I don't think that that's an appropriate use for it. Uh, just because you're a a preacher or a teacher or a pastor in the church doesn't mean that you don't handle with some administrative stuff. Again, the apostles have a unique role here. There should be an an emphasis in those offices of ministry of the word, but it doesn't mean that you withdraw from the needs of the people and everyday stuff in the ministry of the church. That being said, it also doesn't mean that the people shouldn't be stepping up and actively involved in the ministry of the church so it's an we're all in kind of thing and there's some and what we see here the solution uh, many have called this the the initial uh, designation of deacons the word deacon isn't mentioned in this passage at all and in fact the qualifications that we see these men later fleshed out by Paul and they fit the qualifications of an elder (coughs) not just a deacon So there's some understanding here that these guys that they're appointing are in a pastoral type role immediately in Jerusalem. They're administering the the widow stuff. But as we're going to see in a minute, they're also ministering the word, uh, especially when we see Stephen and Philip. Um, So what's the solution? We've already hinted at it. What's the solution here? A group of men. What what kind of men? Good repute. Good repute. Full of, the Spirit. Holy Spirit. full of the Holy Spirit. Wisdom. And wisdom. So you got guys with good reputation. People testify to the fruit of Christ in their lives. It's kind of important whenever people are gonna be handling money. We don't want a Judas. We want a person full of the Holy Spirit. How do you know that? How how are we gonna know that? They got a big. They they get a special coat they wear. They sit in the gold chair at church. By their actions. That's it. By their actions. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> Be gone. Uh, by their actions. So there, there's a there's a tangible, objective witness to them. Uh, that, that the Holy Spirit is working, that they've yielded, you know, Paul talks about yield yourself to the Holy Spirit, that they've yielded themselves to the Spirit. They're seeing fruit of that in the lives of these men. What else do we see? What else do we see? This is the third thing. because all good things come in threes? What is it? Wisdom. Okay, yes, wisdom. So, I didn't hear you. Um... Wisdom for what they're handling, money. they're handling money. It's at this issue. We want to have guys who have some, some snap about them to administrate this stuff. So that's the solution. Pick your, from yourself guys like this and what kind of guys did they pick? Who did they pick from? Where did they pick? <clears throat> Look at the names. Sound Greek. They sound Greek to me. Um, in fact, that's exactly what it is. They pick seven men from the, from the community, from the section of the community where the dispute arose. Your men know who the widows are. Your men can speak the language. Your men can deal with this. Let's pick from them. And you see uh, here them addressing, and basically what's ultimately going to happen here is these men are the ones who are commissioned not just to do wait tables, they're going to be going out. This is where it starts. It's the Hellenistic Jews that move out. That includes Paul, by the way. They're the ones who are, who are going out. Alright. So the people like the proposal. The, con- the, con- the congregation made the selection. Uh, the apostles set the vision of the solution, but the people had the final approval of the plan and the selection of the men to serve. Uh, They chose Hellenists. We can tell by the names. But notice the order that Luke lists them in. Who's he lists first? Stephen. Who's next on the list of people to highlight in Acts? Philip. Stephen. Stephen. Then who's next that he lists? Probably Philip. Philip. Very good guess. And who's next that Luke deals with in Acts after Stephen? Philip. Philip. These are the two guys. Luke is, again, doing this thing. He's this, orderly this orderly account. Exactly right. He, gives, he, he, he highlights somebody almost incidentally, and then they become a prominent character in the history as we're moving on. Um, and Stephen, he, he's highlighting as someone who is a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and he's doing that to show what kind of character this guy has to go through what he's about to go through. Um, just some information on some of the other guys. We really know nothing definite about them. <laughs> but there's some early tradition that Pro-cho- Prochorus... I'm going to get it right here in a minute. Uh, is, ...is connected to the Apostle John some way. Some some have said that, that uh, he was actually the one who penned the fourth gospel at John's direction. Uh, he apparently according to early church tradition, served as a bishop and was martyred in Antioch. Um, Nicholas is given the designation proselyte of Antioch, and it's thought by many that he was the main source of information about the Hellenists for Luke. Uh, The Nicolaitans, the Nicolaitans, we've talked about as as Philip has been preaching through Revelation, and they were a Gnostic group, but they seem to have taken his name to give themselves some street cred, although there's no evidence he had anything to do with them whatsoever. So just a little bit about what we know about some of the other guys. What's the significance when he says just a proselyte from Antioch? Was he just a, a, a Gentile who converted, or what's the proselyte? Uh, it, I, that's kind of the idea. He may have been a Gentile that converted, um, but I think he's also planting the seed there of the importance of Antioch later. Okay he's kind of pulling that in. But but you're right. I mean, it's kind of ambiguous as whether or not he was Jewish or Greek, full on Greek. So all right. So so the apostles commissioned them for the task. They laid their hands on them, which is a sign of, of designating them for the task. And then we never hear of their task again. What we see is their witness. We never hear an account of, hey, they fed the widows well, there was, a lot, there was an increase in the church because of how they handled the with-. We never hear anything about that task again. What we see is these men bearing witness to the reality of the death, burial, resurrection of Christ, life, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, taking and imaging what the apostles are doing because we see uh, Stephen doing some similar acts and signs and wonders and those kinds of things here in the next passage. What was the result of the handling of this problem? You have kind of a chaos thing. It wasn't really contentious. It was like, it was more of an oops. And how are we going to deal with it? And it could have gone horribly sideways, right? What do you mean you, you're not getting, you know, you don't deserve as much as our widows do. Or I mean, you could have a number of things. I don't like the color of the carpet in your house, so why am I going to go? We have all kinds of things that could have happened. But they resolved it and they all resolved it together. They kept peace in the house of God. And what was what was the result here? What happened? The word of God spread. The word of God increased. It spread. Isn't that weird that it said the word of God? Why wouldn't it say that the 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 witnesses grew or the, 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 the believers grew or something? It says the word of God increased. What an odd statement. What do, you think that, what do you think that's alluding to? Remember that parable? The importance of? The Word of God. Remember the parable of the sower? So we have an allusion here to the increase of the important Word of God falling on fertile soil such that who's coming to faith in Christ? Priests are coming to faith in Christ. That's awkward. But it's happening. And there's mercy there. And there's reconciliation there. And they're part of the community that's growing in Jerusalem. Look at verse 8. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. So naturally, they secretly instigated men who said, And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And uh, chapter 7. And the high priest said, Are these things so? So here we begin the major turning point in Acts. It ends the three trials before the Sanhedrin. The first trial, what happened? They got a what? A slap on the wrist, a warning. Do not preach or teach in this name. Second time, what happened? They went to jail and they got beaten, flogged. Don't preach or teach in this name. Third time, what happens? He gets stoned, doesn't he? Mm -hmm. What's odd about verse eight, though? Let's let's address that real quick. What's odd about verse eight? Who is Stephen? Is he an apostle? No. No, and yet, what is he doing? Great wonder wonders. What are we to make of that? I mean, what are we to make of that? Pyramids. What's that? the pyramids, the of the world. <laughs> no, no pyramids. We have a non-apostle. Who is full of the Holy Spirit, doing signs and wonders, among what people? By the way, where is he going? Just Jewish people. They're Jewish, but the thought is he's speaking to the to the Greeks because what's the synagogue that rises up against him? The, uh, uh, the Serenians, Alexandrians. The Freemans. The Freemans. Yeah. Any of those really focused on Jerusalem? No, no, they're all Hellenists. They're all Greek-speaking jews and you would think that guys who are a little bit more cosmopolitan have gotten outside of the bubble that is jerusalem and its israel-centric nature uh would would be a little bit more forgiving a little bit more with it a little bit more open to change and, and new ideas right no 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 that is not open to change um the, the, I, the, the archaeological accounts that we have, the historical accounts that we have, is the guys that come back from the Diaspora to Jerusalem are hardcore nationalists. Very much zealous for, uh, for the superiority of Israel. And so when you get a guy in there talking about the Messiah, and they're trying to dispute him, and can they? It says they tried and failed. They tried and failed. So he's arguing with their Scripture, because that's the one they've got. They don't have a written New Testament yet. They're using the Old Testament. It's a unique time in uh, church history where where this is going on. They're just using the Old Testament. And so he's disputing with them over their word, over their Scripture. Isaiah 53 comes to mind. And and they're going through this thing, and they can't beat him. So they So, I mean, the natural thing to do would be to what? Every argument I've made, he shot down the logical, reasonable argument here made by this guy. It's killing. You're doing that ad hominem. <laughs> turn him into an ad hominem. <laughs> to to <laughs> the the logical thing would be to repent, wouldn't it? Maybe I'm wrong. When you reject Christ, everything is absurd. It's irrational. The choices that people make to suppress the truth lead to absolute irrationality. What are they complaining about him doing? He's speaking against Moses and God, right? Moses is the lawgiver, God, they're talking about the temple, and we'll see that here in a minute whenever he gets to actually before the Sanhedrin. The argument is, you spoke against the law and the temple. What's the temple supposed to be in, is, in Israelite theology? It's God's house. He lives there. Because to speak against the temple, is speaking against God, right? So you've got him speaking against the law and speaking against the house of God, the presence of God. Um, and so the natural thing to do, that, to do then, to put that down, is to do what? let's violate the law, right? Let's solicit slander against our neighbor. Let's solicit false witness before a trial, the tribunal. That's logical. Anytime there's a rejection of Christ and the God of the Bible, it is reduced, the actions of the people that do that get reduced to absurdity. And that's exactly what's going on. It's absolutely hypocritical what they're doing. What does this remind you of? Always a good answer in Sunday school. We have to have it at least once in class. Yes! He's imaging Christ here. This bit repeats over and over and over again in Acts. Yes, it does. It's the... Somebody's sharing the gospel, people don't like it, they take them to a council and they get beaten or killed or run out of town. Right. Right. But some believe. Yes. And that's the kicker. That's the thing. They keep going back to their council They right. keep going back and right. keep sharing the gospel. Again, that's right. Again, despite the consequences to themselves. That's right. And you see it here as the first example of how far the, the Christians are willing to take that. Um, it says they secretly instigated. It's actually much stronger in the original Greek. Uh, giving them words to say, put them up to something is, is kind of the idea there. Did they go directly to the Sanhedrin with these lies? What's different about this one? They told the people and the elders. And the scribes. They're including the people. Up to this point, the Christians had had favor with the people, right? The the the, the guard captain of the guard came to the apostles and said, "Could you please come with us?" Because they were afraid of the people mm-hmm. who supported the apostles very much in favor. Not now. They're taking these lies and stirring up the people with them against Stephen. Yeah. this was also a person that the people picked, right? Well, that the Christians have picked. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah, But they're going. But the general population is what is what they're talking about. Is what he's talking about here. They spread the scandal of Stephen the blasphemer all over town. This time, the people move against Stephen. It's the first time the people came in active opposition against the Christians. Likewise, both factions of the Sanhedrin are alarmed and they arrest Stephen and bring him before uh, their body. What are the charges that they bring at trial? And you see it again. It's the same kind of thing. He, he spoke against the law, spoke against Moses, blasphemed Moses, spoke against this place, this holy place, spoke against God. So it's the same charges that he's doing. Um, and it reminds us Luke immediately although Luke doesn't have the trial of Jesus in this and Acts it reminds us again of the trial of Jesus and that's undergirded in everything and in fact the way Luke sets this up it's as if Jesus is put on trial again right here it's not Stephen they're rejecting they're rejecting Christ again have we heard that? 1 Samuel They haven't rejected you, Samuel. They've rejected me. And again, Stephen is in that place. They haven't rejected you. They've rejected me. It's not actually when we get down to it. It's not Stephen on trial before the witness of heaven. It's the Sanhedrin. This is the third time that my disciples, my apostles have borne witness to you of who I am. <clears throat> what are you going to do? And so it gets quiet once the chaos dies down. And what is before them? What do they see once they stop the accusations? The face of an angel. The face of an angel. Shining kind of face, kind of idea. And you see this in all the old medieval mosaics. You know, you, every martyr has this glowing face with a ring around, angelic kind of deal. What does that remind you of? Do you think of any other figures in Scripture whose face shone? Moses. Moses. Jesus. And Jesus. Now, isn't that interesting? <laughs> so Stephen is here before them on charge of violating, speaking against the law from Moses and against the holy place, the dwelling place for God. And his face reflects by a beautiful picture of the Holy Spirit allowing this to happen, his face reflects really typifying who who the church is. The possessor of the law of Christ, the dwelling place for God. The true law and the true dwelling place in the picture of Stephen before these people. Um he's reflecting Christ, the Spirit gives him a visible response to the heavenly vision he's seeing. We'll see that next week. All right, in contrast, we see their false charges violating the law and in defense of the building where the presence of God departed centuries before. okay we'll we'll, we'll continue uh, in chapter seven next week, but just uh As some closing thoughts, what an encouragement this is to us in the faithfulness of Stephen. And essentially an encouragement to us of the worth of Christ here. Paul says in Romans 8.18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. In Philippians 3, he says, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. We see the worth of Christ and how the church handled an administrative dispute. Something simple. Rather than put nationalism and cultural superiority at the center, the unity of the body and the grace of Christ was the focus because Christ was worth it. Our church disputes, and we have them from time to time, should be centered on the worth of Christ. Get it resolved. Fix it. Make it work. Because the testimony of Jesus is at stake. We see the worth of Christ in the caring for the outcast widows and the burden of their care was viewed as nothing compared to the display of the beauty of Jesus in that while we were yet sinners, while we were yet, as Romans 3.12 says, worthless, Christ died for the ungodly. We see the worth of Christ and the risk taken by Stephen to be faithful in preaching Christ to a hostile crowd. He could have just stayed among the other Hellenistic Jew, uh, Jewish Christians and dealt with their widows. That was what he was commissioned to do. But he's out there preaching in a hostile crowd because Christ was worth it, is worth it. We also see the faithfulness of Christ in giving him the wisdom wisdom to do it well. We see the worth of Christ in Stephen's courageous speech to the Sanhedrin, even though the outcome of this trial is clear. We'll see this next week. Massively huge testimony that Stephen gives before the Sanhedrin. He doesn't plead for his life. He pleads for them to be reconciled to Christ. That's his focus because Christ is worth it. The heart question we're faced with here is obvious. Can an impoverished world see the worth of Christ in our lives? Paul addresses this question to the Galatians. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? So the call to us is not to go back to what's worthless but to press forward and display the worth of Jesus in the face of any obstacle. Whether it's in the body or outside the body. Any comments or questions? It's just 10.06. That's all it is. All right. Well, I'll close this in prayer. Father, there's so many ways that we display the worth of Christ. Some of them are very public. Some of them are very private. And Father, would you help us to see that in your mercy, you have given us the Holy Spirit to help us to display the beauty of Jesus In all areas of life whether they're public or private would you cause us stir up in us a zeal to make him known that we would adorn the gospel with a holiness that only comes from you that is born by your spirit I pray for this group I pray that the love for your word would increase the boldness to preach it would increase, that the grace that you have uh, given us would be reflected in the speech that we have toward others and how we treat one another. Because the gospel's at stake. And we don't want to put any obstacles to the clear and accurate message that Jesus has lived, He's died, He's risen, and He sits on a throne ruling and reigning the nations even now putting all of his enemies under his feet. The call is clear. Be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. Would you make us faithful witnesses to that message? In Christ's name we pray, amen.